Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm in conversation today with my good friend, Tammy Simon. You may not be familiar with Tammy's work, but she's the founder of the multimedia publishing company, Sounds True. Over its 36-year history, Sounds True has produced over 3,000 titles and been included twice for the Inc. 500 list of the fastest-growing companies. Tammy also hosts the popular Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge which has now been downloaded more than 15 million times. Tammy has been instrumental in the creation of the Inner MBA program, which is now open for registration. Sounds True is partnered with LinkedIn and Wisdom 
for this nine-month interactive program featuring esteemed CEOs and conscious business and mindfulness leaders, including me. The program is certified through New York University's Mindful NYU. Welcome to the podcast, Tammy. Thank you, Sharon. It's great to be with you, always. It's always great to be with you. I think of so many of the times we've shared, including, as I, I just said to you, uh, as we were checking sounds, I remember sitting in your car in um, Boulder. I had gone to record, I think, the audio version of Faith, and uh, you held up a CD and you said, see this? This is going to be obsolete. And I thought, what is she talking about? Like, And I've, I've always seen you, honestly, as a tremendous visionary and somebody who you're kind of like a seer in my mind, somebody who senses um, the next iteration, the next, the next flow for this community. And so 36 years is quite a long time. It is a long time. And interestingly, I feel as committed, as interested, as passionate about Sounds True and what we're up to in the world as I ever have. So that that's interesting. I don't see any end in sight. It's a, a long arc for me. And I think that's because, and, and you know, you, you and I, Sharon, have talked about the Dharma in so many different ways over the years. But it's uh, once your life, in in my experience at least, becomes devoted to that. It's endless. It's endlessly fulfilling. And I think about well, the Insight Meditation Society just had its forty fifth anniversary, so I I get what what a thirty six year span is, mm-hmm. and uh, I know that I've seen a lot of changes in your company just as you started out as an. Uh, audio company, right? And then it's just grown and, and expanded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you, you you mentioned the story about, you know, CDs going away and yeah. starting as an audio cassette company. And, you know, in some ways it's changed a whole heck of a lot in terms of the format. And we've expanded into all of these different formats. But in another sense, the original vision, disseminate spiritual wisdom, is still right at the core of everything that we do. It's it's that we found different media uh, by whatever media necessary, mm-hmm. like to in order to express that. And you know, one of the interesting things for me has been to see how you can disseminate spiritual wisdom in sixty seconds or in a nine month training program. And I mm-hmm. think in the beginning, I had this heavy bent towards long form learning. And I was like, you know, you need hours and hours and hours. And and then I started saying, no, it's the same principles, which is give real quality, embed it in every word, embed it in the intention of what you're doing. And it's possible to deliver that medicine in so many different kinds of capsules or formats. It's endless how to do it and it keeps evolving. That's so fantastic. So I wonder if we could start um, with the story of how you first got interested in the path of, of practice and also what your practice looks like these days in the midst of COVID and this very different version of life that we're living. Sure. Well, I'll take the, the first part of the question first, mm-hmm. which is, there I was, a, a young person going off to Swarthmore College, thinking I would be a philosophy major. 
And I don't think I really understood at the time as a, you know, 18-year-old what it meant to be a philosophy major. I just wanted to study the meaning of life and what mattered the most. But I soon discovered that I was better suited for the religious studies department. And I think that's because what was really alive and of interest to me was personal revelation, personal experience, personal knowing. So there I was studying mysticism and studying the teachings of the mystics. And in my sophomore year in the religious studies department, I had the great good fortune of studying with someone from Sri Lanka who was there teaching on a Fulbright scholarship, Gunapala Dharmasiri. And Gunapala Dharmasiri had spent his first 16 years as a Buddhist monk and he was at Swarthmore teaching on Buddhism and existentialism and Buddhist ethics. And uh, Gune, as he was called, his nickname, he and I became fast friends uh, after the, the first or second class. And I would actually go to his house in the evenings, maybe two or three times a week. And with his wife and his three kids, we would sit down and we would have these full-on Sri Lankan curry dinners that I loved. And then afterwards, I would do the dishes with his wife and play with his kids. And this became more interesting to me and the conversations I was having with Gune than all of my other coursework combined. Mm -hmm. And at the end of my sophomore year, I was determined to travel with him back to Sri Lanka and to take a year off and to see what would come from that. And when I was in Sri Lanka, I had more great good fortune in that Goenka was teaching one of his 10-day meditation boot camp training programs right there in Kandy, which was next to where Gune lived. And I took one of those first 10-day trainings. When I came back, Gune looked at me and he said, your eyes look different. They're like turned on mm. in a way that I've never seen before. And that was really when I fell in love with meditation. And I ended up traveling up to Igatpuri in India and doing two more of these 10-day intensives and then traveling up to Kathmandu and other, doing another 10-day intensive. So I had done four 10-day intensives over the course of a few months. And in that, it was a tremendous homecoming for me, that discovery of meditation. And I think it, it gave me something that I thought I would originally find in the philosophy department and then the religious studies department. And I couldn't find it reading books, but I did find it sitting on the cushion, which was a sense of homecoming, belonging, acceptance, relaxation, knowing, being okay as a human being. Let's just say it the way I finally felt okay. And it was kind of the first time, to be honest, that I felt okay that there wasn't some part of me that was like, can I please get beamed up to my home planet now and get out of here? Mm -hmm. It was like, no, I, I don't need to go back to my home planet, whatever that is. I can actually sit here and be with myself. So it was a huge uh, revelation for me and really sounds true and the birth of sounds true came out of those initial days of meditation and a devotion that came forward in me to bring the practice of meditation and similar contemplative practices in whatever form to as many people as possible. I dedicated my life to that while I was in India. So that's the, the first mm -hmm. part 
of the answer to your question about what brought me to the path. In terms of this past pandemic period, one of the things I've I've noted is that as someone who's quite introverted, the pandemic has actually allowed me to be more myself. And I didn't even realize that I was kind of, um, I don't know what, what quite I said, I was kind of faking it to go out to all those business dinners and do all that travel and uh, be that forward with so many people so much of the time. And that my natural rhythms are quieter, actually, where I spend a lot more time alone and a lot more time walking in the woods with, uh, I have two uh, young dogs who like one to two hours of exercise a day. So I think the pandemic has given me a lot more time with myself, and I'm grateful for that, deeply grateful for that. And I think it's also showed me that as we emerge out of the pandemic, hopefully here as a vaccinated culture, that I'm going to say no to a lot more things mm -hmm. and honor this natural introversion in me. Yeah, I've heard that. I'm obviously, you know, this has been such a difficult time in so many ways and uh, really just awful for so many people. And and yet for some people, um, there have been obviously those uh, almost like gifts to be unearthed. You know, people tell me um, they've discovered their neighbors in New York City, for example, in ways that everyone, as you know, they kind of tend yeah. to live very... Uh, isolated, you know, like somebody said to me, I have, I've lived in this apartment for 12 years. I never even knew my neighbor's names. Yeah. And now we all have one another's names and phone numbers and we check in on each other. Or someone told me she moved um, away from a, what we would call a kind of um, glittering kind of life in, in New York city of lunches and dinners and things like that. And she moved uh, to a house she has in the country, and and she said, "I'm growing a garden." <laughs> you know, yeah. like that is a very different rhythm of life, and and so I'm hoping that certainly in terms of that sense of having found one another and needing to relate to one another and honoring our own rhythms, I'm hoping that that sustains as we as we go forward. So I was also touched because Goenka was my first teacher. Mm -hmm. And so it was such a, an incredibly inspiring turning point. It was like, there was no looking back in a way from, yeah from that. And um, I want to ask you, didn't you, did you have a radio show before you started Sounds True? Is that where it all began? Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, it's just interesting to hear about your connection with Goinka yeah, yeah. as well. And, you know, I think there was something about the 10 day format where you're waking up at 5 a.m. and going to bed at 10 p.m. and you're in noble silence the entire time it was such an intense pressure cooker mm -hmm. that I think it's part of what uh, gave birth to the intense devotion mm -hmm. in me was mm -hmm. being trained in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And what happened actually is as I spent more time in India, actually uh, things didn't go so well for me, to be honest. It was hard for me to integrate the intensity Mm -hmm. of the meditation experience. And for a period of time, I even stopped eating very much mm. to the point that I weighed less than 100 pounds. I'm sure. I had developed hepatitis and 
when my parents discovered that I didn't call home on my 21st birthday because I was in a clinic, they were like, okay, game over, game mm-hmm. over, you know, youthful adventure over, you're coming home. And when I came home at the time, I wasn't talking very much either. So I wasn't talking very much and I wasn't eating very much. And my parents were like, oh my God, what happened to our big mouth daughter? Which was actually a nickname I had when I was growing oh, up, was big mouth. They're like, something's wrong. What happened? This meditation's, you know, she, she's off the rails. And I was like, well, I think a lot of talking is just about filling space. And I like space. I'm comfortable in space. I don't have any need to fill space. And, you know, so they were very concerned. And they were like, could you just please finish your academic degree? That's all we ask. And at the time, I I didn't quite know if I was going to finish my academic degree. But I came out to Boulder. And in coming out to Boulder, I thought I would go to Naropa. And I could study the psychology of meditation, try to figure out what was happening with me, and hopefully have some positive integration experiences. But during that time, I discovered I just didn't want any kind of academic immersion, even an alternative university like Naropa. But I was interested in learning, which is interesting. I did want to keep learning. So the radio show that I hosted was born out of that desire in me to talk to spiritual teachers and interview spiritual teachers and understand from them some of the questions that were were emerging in my own life and through my own meditative journeys inside. And so that's when I started this volunteer radio interview show. It was called Live from Planet Earth, Mm. where I interviewed the various spiritual teachers who were coming through Boulder. And meanwhile, my parents said, if you're not going to get a degree, we're not going to support you. And I was like, well, that makes sense. You shouldn't support me. So I started waitressing at a restaurant, hosting this radio show. And then my father died. Mm. This is a long answer to your question, Sharon, but I'm I'm getting there. And when my father died, I inherited about $50,000. And at the time, one of the people that I was interviewing, I was interviewing him um, on a, a totally different subject. I was interviewing him about crystals because he had huge crystals in his window. But in his window, he also had a yin yang symbol with a dollar sign in the middle and the words transformational economy over this yin yang symbol with a dollar sign. So I said to him, I've inherited this money. What should I do with it? And he said, why don't you put it into yourself? Mm -hmm. And at the time, the volunteer radio show, uh, I would sell like three to five copies at the end of the show because people would contact me and say, Uh, you know, can I have a a cop? Can I buy a copy of your program? And so this was really the birth of Sounds True was using this money that I inherited to uh, further what was a volunteer radio show and take what was a cottage business and try to grow the whole thing. So yes, the radio interview show was part of the very origin of the company. And of course, who knew, you know, that's far way before podcasting Mm -hmm. that 25 years later, uh, I would start a podcast, and that would become an important part of Sounds True's growth and outreach. Well, first, I have to say that as a meditation teacher who's you know taught a lot of people, I really drew a, a breath of relief when you said you were waitressing because I thought, oh, she got grounded, <laughs> you know, yeah. like after kind of floating in that uh, other space. Um, 
the waitressing helped and then believe you know starting the sounds true it was such an important grounded activity for me and i liked it so much and of course with a young business uh you know if you don't throw yourself into it it probably won't grow and prosper so i think working 60 70 hours a week uh that was really grounding too Mm -hmm. it really helped Mm -hmm. me so much those beginning days uh just to take all the energy that I had tapped into and starting to weave it into my body through work. So great. I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated at kind of media in general. Like I remember reading the accounts of people who heard about Ramdas on his trip back from India when, you know, he was already Ramdas. He'd met his guru. He was teaching. Um, and so many people in those accounts would say, I heard him on the radio. Or uh, Raghu Marcus uh, would say, you know, I heard him on the radio, WBAI, and I brought him uh, to my show in Montreal. And then three people would write, well, I heard him on Raghu's show, and Raghu was Mitchell in those days. Uh, You know, I heard him on that show in Montreal, and I decided to go to India. And um, to think about just the role of the, of the medium in in being able to disseminate knowledge and accessibility and and in those days it was radio it was the radical force for the people yeah you know even in the very beginning of sounds true i thought of each cassette and we would duplicate the cassettes at the end of a workshop so if we went to your loving kindness workshop and recorded it we would duplicate cassettes on type uh, you know right there on site as people were leaving and i thought of each cassette as being this concentrated agent of revolution each little cassette held that much power and potential and i think it's true it's an incredibly powerful medium incredibly powerful so in 36 years from from the beginning of the company, uh, we've seen an entire industry grow around yoga and meditation. And so uh, I'm just thinking about the responses you might have gotten from people when you told them what your company was about originally, which is a little bit like my being introduced as a meditation teacher in 1975 or something, um, to now where just uh, the the difference is so enormous and and part of it i think is is the accessibility you know that i went to india when i was 18 and i didn't know where else to find meditation instruction and i was a new yorker i was going to school in buffalo never even been to california before but i was going which is like the miracle of my life you know that i look back and i think why did i think i could go to india like at 18, but I did. And, and these days, um, you know, to have all these practices and, and teachings so much more accessible means that, uh, so many more people might reach for them. You don't have to be in some like vast, intense state of suffering, although many people are, um, and you don't have to think like, I've got to get to India. It's like, it's right here. And I think that's wonderful. Indeed. Indeed it is. You know, as things have have changed over 36 years, I think one of the anchoring 
commitments I continue to have is to make sure that the work that Sounds True is doing and what we're putting out is both broad and deep at the same time. And I don't want the depth dimension to ever get lost. And that requires a certain commitment because I think a lot of the contemporary purveyors of meditation training and all different kinds and formats, it can just be a a kind of surface level uh, uh, offering. And that's Mm -hmm. fine and that's good. But I really want Sounds True to also make sure that the depth of identity transformation that's possible is available to people and that we take people there. So that's Mm -hmm. one of my own uh, personal commitments. Well, I think that's wonderful, and I think the um, the medium lends itself to that because uh, as things have gotten more popular, as these techniques and methods have gotten more popular, they've often gotten more popularized, you know, mm-hmm. and and so uh, for people to be able to access voices where you are really the gatekeeper and you're a wonderful gatekeeper, where um, you know, someone doesn't, I mean, I'm sure you have to be moved in some way by the presentation or inspired or, or provoked in a good way by the presentation in order to include somebody. And, and that's really important because it is kind of like wild out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember, um, talking, uh, to your friend and, uh, colleague Joseph Goldstein at one mm-hmm. point, and it was when we published his book on mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so much depth in in that book. And I said, you know, how do you feel about all the mic mindfulness that's going on? Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, Tammy, it doesn't bother me, it doesn't worry me. I just want to make sure that there are at least some people that are anchoring the depth of the tradition and making that available to people. Mm-hmm. And that's my focus. And I thought that was a great answer because, you know, I realized that in myself, I could spend a lot of energy being critical, yeah, or right. I could just focus on this other thing and that that would be a lot more useful. And so his answer really helped me. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. And uh, I'm thinking you're also uh, willing. Uh, Joseph's book is like giant. <laughs> it's like really a big book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, 500 page, they people call yeah. them what doorstops, but that's what it took for him to be able to uh, unpack the Satipatthana Sutra in the way that he was already teaching it, and it fit. It fit for what he was doing. Yeah, so and I really admire that as well. That your um, publications are are varied, and and you know some of them are. Um. I don't want to say challenging, like in terms of Joseph's book, but it's a big book, you know, Yeah. at a time when we don't necessarily have like an awful lot of attention span, people think. Yeah. So how wonderful, you know, that, that a range of um, depth, in-depth approaches can, can really be offered in, in a fashion that in so many different fashions, you know, some very, uh, as you say, one, the one sentence, uh, yeah. pith instruction, and then the really larger, longer kind of offerings. 
Yeah, I think what what's important to me is to let each thing be what it is and to try to listen to it, if you will. Like, what does this project want? What does it want to be? Does it want to be a small little this or does it want to be a long that? And kind of let it be a being that finds its right form versus taking some procrustean, like everything that we do fits this format. Well, that's just not the way creative projects are. That's really wonderful. And and I want to say that you're uh, having worked with you on several projects and uh, seen you with work with St. Joseph um, or Ram Dass or, uh, you know, the, the creation of these products, the book or the recording means so much to the creator. You know, this is representative of one's life's work and and I've always felt like you've honored that and that it wasn't just a sense of um, what's most commercially yeah. appealing. And then there's, you know, I keep thinking of Joseph and, and uh, the artwork and how glorious you were. Because Joseph, uh, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know him, is extremely precise in terms of what he likes and doesn't like in terms of art. And, and uh, I remember, I, I guess we were, you and I were having breakfast together in New York or something when the company was in the middle of that. And and uh, he, uh, you said something like, and then I proposed to the art department, like, think of it as like a wonderful challenge, you know, <laughs> yeah, like to really produce yeah. something that will make them happy. I think the challenge for me has been more working with my internal staff. And they're like, Tammy, you don't stand up to the authors enough. We want to do it our way. Our way is that, you know, we make them fit into this and we only get three Mm -hmm. possible. So they have to choose one of three things and that'll be more profitable. And it'll also make our work easier. And, you know, it's not that I don't understand those arguments and it's not that I don't understand uh, those perspectives, but I really think that, uh, you know, we've defined ourselves now as an author-centric publishing company. And I think using that language is important. And I always try to tell people, put yourself in the place of the person who spent their entire life working on uh, this body of work. And imagine someone puts a cover on it that you don't like, and you have to hold it up when you go and talk at a, at a, at a bookstore event or something. How would you feel? And yeah, so I think that, you know, people often, they just want to make their work more convenient for them. I mean, that's what people, they're trying to optimize their own uh, flow and work life. But uh, I think that could be a false optimization and that there are bigger goals to be achieved. <laughs> but it takes a lot of uh, creativity and fluidity and collaboration. Yeah. yeah. So that brings me to the Inner MBA program and this uh, new kind of program that you're offering and and the questions of leadership and uh, leading a company or being in a leadership position in some way. Um, and I'm wondering if you could uh, begin the conversation about the MBA program. Sure. Well, you know, about 10 years ago, I started seeing that people were starting to tiptoe into the world of mindfulness at work. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. People are bringing meditation into the workplace, there could there could be a real opportunity here for Sounds True to be able to impact so many people and change the workplace. 
But at the time, and you know, this is interesting, Sharon, because it tracks to what we were saying about the 36 year history in my case and the 40 plus year history in your case with IMS about how even the word mindfulness was accepted in the workplace, but meditation, not so much, not so much. That sounds spiritual or religious. And I felt very nervous 10 years ago, eight years ago, six years ago, about trying to somehow scrub the spiritual dimension or mystical dimension or deep inner dimension out of the transformation of the workplace and just be a science-based, evidence-based, mindfulness training program. I just thought that's not really, that's not who I am. That's not what the Sounds True brand is. And it won't take people long if they're working in an HR department and they start researching what Sounds True is up to, to find like Wiccan blessings or something like that on our (laughs) list. It's not going to take them long. And so it wasn't ready. The world, it didn't feel ready. Uh, It felt like the ground was becoming fertile, but not yet ready for Sounds True to enter. But then over the last few years, I was like, huh, there's a new, there's a new opening in our time. And this whole wisdom and inner dimension. And you know, here you are with your books in the same space, uh, reaching successfully a wide audience of people. There, it's time for loving kindness at work. It's time for Tong Len practice at work and self-compassion at work. It's time for a a deep look, not just at how we can be purpose-driven in our work, but where will the real meaning from our work come from? So as I started seeing this ripening, I was in contact with someone who's a a mutual friend of ours, Soren Gordimer of Wisdom 2.0. And Soren and I decided to partner. And he said, you know, I think I can bring LinkedIn to the table, Tammy. They're really interested in building a future at work that's based on compassion. They want to build compassionate companies and they want to train business leaders to put compassion at the center of their workplace policies. And so I think LinkedIn would be a great partner as well. And so that was really the uh, opening, the beginning roots of the Inner MBA, this nine-month program that begins again in September of this year and then runs through May of 2022. I remember um, when I wrote this book called Real Happiness at Work, which I don't know, maybe it came out like eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that. And... uh, People were so funny about it often, like, um, well, partly that's the word happiness and how it's understood, but, you know, people were commenting like, uh, you're not supposed to have fun all day long at work. That's why we call right. it work. We don't call it play. And I think, well, that's not really what I mean. You know, like, I don't think of happiness as just having fun all day long. And and it does have so much more to do with that sense of meaning. And interestingly enough, as I was touring with that book as one used to and uh, meeting different people. I'd meet so many people who had like on the face of it, not great jobs. And, and they were tremendously meaningful to them because they were, they were using things like, how do I relate to customers? Can I make someone's day brighter? Can I bring more compassion into this workplaces, you know, difficult as it is or 
or whatever. And they, and they felt genuinely a, a sense of connection and importance in what they were doing. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think, you know, another big motivator for me in creating the Inner MBA is that I started hearing more and more people leading businesses who were saying things like, you know, we're part of the conscious capitalist movement or uh, our company's becoming a B Corp and all terrific aspirations and turning businesses into these forces for good, but yet not doing the actual inner work such that the way the companies were being managed, there was actually a deep empowerment of everybody in the workplace. So not just about policies at a certain level or even business philanthropy, but something else, something that says, you know, we've actually turned our business into, and this is my language, a crucible for personal growth. Mm -hmm. We value people growing at work and there are skills that are required if you're going to have your business be a crucible for personal growth. Meaning, do people know how to listen deeply, really, and give feedback and have brave conversations, really, and be direct with each other in a way that's kind and skillful versus having all these weird back-channeling conversations and gossiping and creating office drama? And this is where I thought, you know, I really want the workplace to be our contemporary growth crucible. And it's wonderful to have mindfulness practice be part of work. And it's so helpful. And then do people have the skills to take their mindfulness off the cushion and under situations of stress, which there are all the time, use those skills, those mindfulness skills interpersonally. And that's really a, a lot of what inspired me about the inner MBA was to provide people with that training and also give people some practice environments where we can start trying on those skills of coming forward and having difficult conversations, listening in a, in a deeper and different way, talking to each other about our business challenges, that kind of thing. Well, it's interesting because I remember, uh, you know, as I did more and more work with uh, people we call caregivers, you know, who were uh, often in many cases on the front lines of suffering, trying to make a difference, um, international and humanitarian aid workers and uh, domestic violence shelter workers, which is where it started. And these days, frontline medical personnel. Um, many times, you know, when some program was announced, people would write and say, I don't know if I qualify. I'm a manager. Right. You know, I sit in an office. I'm not in the Syrian refugee camps, actually. But they were struggling, you know, so much often because um, they were dispensing resources. They were responsible for a lot of decisions. They were allocating personnel and uh, sometimes having to let go of personnel. And, and there was so much burnout on that level. And it's, they didn't think of themselves as caregivers because they were one step removed. And of course, we always said, absolutely, you know, please come. And so um, I'm wondering, like, just sort of what's the range of who this program is geared towards? Mm -hmm. You know, I'll answer that in just a, a moment, but I, I want to um, just 
uh, connect one thing because you talked about how when you put out happiness at work, people really like happiness. And yet this whole notion of well-being and self-care, it's now absolutely clear that when people feel that the place they work for cares about them and gives them a green light to engage in their own self-care and to focus on well-being, that the level of engagement obviously goes up. Because, you know, really, what kind of creativity, productivity, and engagement are you going to get from a burned out staff? You know, people are, are, are riding on fumes. And so I think that's a big part of the revolution that we're seeing is people wanting to be whole people at work, not one productivity machine in the grind when they go into work. And then separately, somebody who tries to restore themselves, but one integrated, balanced person who has a whole lot of well-being and works for a company that cares about that. So in terms of the type of people that are drawn to the inner MBA, I think they're people who sense that they could up-level their own skills as a, as a manager, as a leader, as a solopreneur, entrepreneur, as a coach. A lot of people are now exploring new careers as mindfulness coaches or trainers, wanting to add on new skills if they're someone who goes into business as a coach. And then companies are sending groups of their employees. Google sent 100 employees, LinkedIn, a couple hundred employees, the Veterans Health Administration. And really, it's because what we've packed into the nine months of the program is the best wisdom training. As you mentioned, Sharon, you're in the program. Yeah, in the program. And other wisdom teachers as well, but also CEOs. And CEOs like Rose Macario of Patagonia or Eileen Fisher Joey Bergstein from Seventh Generation, who are saying, look, it's not a myth that when you put these kinds of uh, workplace policies in place, that you get better results. Let me tell you how we did it in our workplace, the challenges we faced, and the outcomes. Let me share this all with you. And so it's a real learning incubator for what I think are the pioneers, the people who are pioneering a new way of doing business that, quite honestly, we need to have if we're going to have a healthy collective future where business is seen as a healing agent in society, not a destructive agent. We need to do this. And it's possible for business to be a very powerful force that both solves problems for customers, for people, and creates environments where we grow at work and we bring out the best in human nature. I bet a lot of people listen to this and they, and they think it doesn't sound like my workplace. Um, it might not today, mm -hmm. but let's see where we are in 10, 20 years, because I think there are several factors that are pushing this evolutionary path. So I think we're just at the beginning. Definitely, we're in the in the in the in the in just the the foothills of this, but I think when you look at the B Corp movement, for example, it takes a lot to qualify as a B Corp. 
You, you have to have a, a lot of transformation within your company. And as more and more of us start saying, I'm going to shop with B Corps, I'm going to support B Corps. And as more and more customers say, okay, they're not a B Corp, but I love that company. I read an article about them. I love the way that they have a buy one, give one policy. That company has not just a trademark, but what's called a love mark. They have a love mark that I identify with that Mm -hmm. brand. I want to support that brand. And when we start not supporting the companies that don't score well, that don't have good employee reports, we're going to see them starting to change. Also, we live in a time of such transparency where you can't hide things anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't hide what's happening in your in your workplace. So in that sense, there's a, a maturation going on in that what's happening behind closed doors, you think they're closed doors at a company. The doors aren't really closed. So businesses are getting sniffed out. And that transparency, that's part of what's driving the diversity, equity, and inclusion mm-hmm. movement. I think it will also drive an economic justice movement and a well-being movement at work. And we're going to see it. It's coming. I mean, I agree. It's really just at the very beginning. I wonder if you need to define B Corp for people. Sure. A B Corp is a type of certification, kind of like the way a, a company might be certified as a fair trade coffee company. Fair trade is a certification, and it's a certification that any company can get if you're willing to have policies uh, and uh, metrics at your company that support diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, a fair minimum wage, uh, HR policies that are inclusive, that kind of thing. Sounds true is in the process this year of becoming a B Corp. And it's forcing us to do a lot of work to formalize some of the wonderful policies that we had that we hadn't formally written up. And I, I think it's, once again, it's it's showing a wave in the culture that I think is going to keep growing. I hope it's going to keep growing. I feel that it is. Yeah, I and mean, I feel that it is too. And I also feel like it's right at the beginning as um, people wrestle with all of these issues, like uh, who's in a leadership position of people been shut out because of gender or sexual preference or race or, um, and even what leadership looks like, I think is, is being redefined. And, and, uh, I do think it's, it's really right at the beginning and it's, it reflects sort of the nature of change in, in society. I went to some conference once and, and there was a whole presentation on, how the nation state was the entity that drove change for a long time because it was the most powerful. And maybe that was becoming business, you know, that there's just different ways of seeing society and what makes for change. And business has been exempt in the, in the sort of singular devotion to profit. Mm -hmm. Um, And as that broadens and and changes, uh, we may see it playing more of a role than uh, many other entities, which would be great because we spend a lot of time at work. Yeah. And I think uh, people who find themselves at businesses and go, what? This doesn't look anything like uh, my workplace. 
you know, obviously there's the choice if it is a choice for you and if there are options for you to work somewhere else that does reflect your values. But even if you have to stay where you are, and this is a question that came up at the Inner MBA, someone asked this to Padmashri Warrior, who is a powerful technology leader. And she talked about how when in her work with various technology companies, even when there were certain policies that she didn't agree with, what she committed herself to doing was influencing what was in her sphere to influence, doing what she could do in the ways that she could to make an impact. And there are people who are saying, you know, I can start a voluntary meditation group right at work. That's just something I do on the side. I can do that. And so there are different things that people can do, different ways you can have influence where you work. Uh, or as I said, choose not to work there. I think one of the forces that's also driving this movement of wisdom at work is people making choices, really talented people making choices about where they'll work. Oh, so in order to get the best talent, guess what? You have to be a different kind of company. So this is a nine-month program, and I don't know how much this was part of your conscious intention in the beginning, but it seems like in nine months, there's a, a much greater sense of community that's created from people doing the program and that they then can be a support for one another as people are facing different challenges and trying to manifest these things yeah. in their lives. Yeah, well, definitely the, the idea was to have something that would be long enough that it could create real transformation. And of course, as I mentioned, I was trying to pack three decades mm -hmm. of learning and uh, work with different wisdom teachers and conscious business trainers into, you know, and they were like, Tammy, it's going to take at least nine months. And let's, let's do that. Then someone commented after we launched the program, it takes nine months to have a baby. Yeah, that's right. And I was just thinking that. We didn't even realize, but we divided the program into three trimesters. Yeah. And we weren't even really thinking about, oh, we're birthing our new selves. We weren't really thinking that way when we designed it, but it, it turned out that way with the first trimester focusing on personal awareness, personal development, the second trimester on interpersonal skills, and then the third transforming our actual organization and the greater world. But we didn't, we didn't think about that, but it is. It's nine months to birth a new you. And it's not even so much the acquisition of skills, although that's a part of it, but it's about becoming someone who is different and sees the world differently so that you're actually starting to look through a lens of interdependence. And, you know, Sharon, I don't know if you'll remember this. This is a conversation you and I had. It might have been two decades ago. It could have been. <laughs> at least more than a decade ago. So you may not remember it, but we were talking about business of all things. And you said, isn't it crazy how companies go out and they try to absolutely make as much money as possible, even if it means, you know, uh, walking over people or whatever. I don't think you use those words, but you know, that ringing out as much profit as they can, uh, ring, 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 ringing. The, and then they have these uh, departments where they give money away. What, what about the, the idea that you could work differently within a kind of justice model from the very beginning? So I don't know if you remember that. I don't you, remember that. 
but you How mentioned did I know something. that two decades ago. You knew that. I don't know. And it just stuck with me. And I think it's this idea of like how we do everything is what matters, not hitting some goal like a profit goal and then donating our money, but instead making each step of our organizational life a beautiful and gorgeous and just step, each step of the way. And and to me, that's much more what it means to have a dharmic business, which is, of course, always what I wanted, a business that the great uh, mystics and wisdom teachers that we publish now and the lineages that I feel uh, we are in service to that are hundreds and thousands of years old, that they would be proud of. They would look at that organization and go, how beautiful. I mean, that's always what I've wanted. That's so wonderful. And thank you so much for everything you that you do and for, for coming on this podcast. Uh, so lastly, I would love it if you could lead us in a guided practice to close out our conversation. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I studied somatic meditation for about 15 years. Uh, and this will be a body-based somatic meditation. And we can just begin by, as we breathe in, feel our sits bones and feel them getting heavy, heavy as we breathe in. And then as we exhale, uh, dropping in a sense of deep release. And then with the next inhale, you can imagine that there's an invisible string pulling you up where the sutras come together at the top of your head. So there's a natural elongation that's happening in the spine as we do this. So breathing in, imagine that string pulling up the hairs, the back of your head. And then when we exhale, we just let ourselves be heavy sitting here. So it's this combination of dropping and releasing on the exhale. And on the inhale, letting a natural elongation happen in the spine as if we're being tugged up by an invisible string. So one more breath like that, elongating our spine on the inhale. and letting ourselves be heavy in our sits bones on the exhale. And then for this practice, what we're gonna do is breathe up from below us, actually starting to breathe in from a point at the center of the earth. So just imagine a point at the center of the earth, just use your imagination, and breathe in a stream of fresh life force energy from all the way down in the center of the earth, and bring it up like an upflowing river coming in through an open gate at the perineum and then flowing up in front of your spine. All the way up to that point at the top of your head and then coming out through the top of your head like a little fountain. We're becoming like a human fountain that's being sourced from this deep, deep, deep river of fresh life force, starting with the inhale, 
down at the center of the earth. So let's take some breaths like that, breathing in. Just use your imagination to help you. The energy just naturally comes up and into your body. Let it flow in front of your spine all the way up. Back of the neck and head all the way out the top of the head. And the exhale is a relaxation and then we breathe in again from that point at the center of the earth. And let your inhale gradually get longer and deeper so you can relish this stream of energy more and more coming up into your body. So it's a nice, long, beautiful inhale. And then it's a deep, relaxing, letting go, exhale. Releasing everything. Again, really enjoying as much as you can the experience of the inhale. Let yourself love it. And then letting go as much as possible on the exhale. And then this time when you breathe in, nice, beautiful, long inhale, and then you breathe out. At the very end of the exhale, you can just take a moment and explore the open space that's there at the end of the exhale before you breathe in again. Just take a couple beats and explore that. And we'll just bring this to a close. You can open your eyes. And Sharon, I can thank you because I always love being with you. You're so super intelligent and loving, and it warms my heart. Thank you so much. I always love being with you. So thank you for for joining us, really for everything you're doing. So um, it's quite amazing. And 36 years goes by like the blink of an eye. So, And yet, you know, so long in coming. So to learn more about Tammy's work, you can check out her podcast, Insights at the Edge, wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the Inner MBA program, you can visit innermba.soundstrue.com. It's I-N-N-E-R-M-B-A dot 
S-O-U-N-D-S-T-R-U-E.com. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and live with ease. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.